This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. I'm the chair of the Academic Program Committee for the Taubman uh, Jewish Studies Symposia, and this is our first uh, event of the year. And I can tell you that we have a very exciting year planned. Um, uh, you've received um, this blue um, um, sheet, which is a schedule of the events um, that Taubman is involved in during the fall quarter. So this is our lead-off event. And this year, one of the things that we're trying to highlight uh, with these symposia are um, young Jewish writers. Um, so throughout the course of the year, in the winter quarter and in the spring, there will be some of, I think, of uh, uh, the United States' best Jewish uh, writers here speaking um, to us. Um, you'll notice also that the next event uh, that we're involved in is an event actually by Letters and Science, um, or excuse me, the um, Arts and Lectures. It's this film entitled Orchestra of Exiles, which is this coming Thursday night at 7.30 in Campbell Hall, it is free. Um, and that is in preparation for another event that uh, Arts and Lectures and the Congregation B'nai B'rith and La Cama, as well as Taupin are involved in, namely the um, uh, Israeli Philharmonic Orchestra with Zubin Mehta on November 1st in the Arlington Theater. And that is, a, of course, an event which you have to have tickets for. And so if you want tickets for those, that event, you have to purchase them through arts and lectures. And then finally, in recognition of the centenary of the Balfour Declaration, we've invited Panina Lahav, who is a historian of uh, Israeli jurisprudence, um, to speak to us uh, just a few days before the 100th anniversary of the um, uh, Balfour Declaration on the 12th of November, uh, and she will be speaking on Golda Meir through um, a feminist lens, and this is her new uh, research book. Um, so with that said, let me introduce to you Tova uh, Mirvis, who is our speaker today, and I've written just a very brief introduction because obviously we want to hear from her. Uh, when she's finished today, I'm going to ask her to go over to the table, and for those of you who have one of her books uh, that you've purchased outside, she will sign it for you. Um, so let me just uh, introduce her uh, in a somewhat formal way. Uh, since the publication of her first novel, which our students are reading, The Ladies' Auxiliary, in 1999, Tova Mirvis has been writing about the internal religious and social tensions deep within the worlds of Orthodox Judaism. The exquisitely drawn characters, and I have to underscore that, you, know, you fall in love with these characters that she um, um, creates. Uh, these exquisitely drawn characters that populate the ladies' auxiliary and then the outside world and the uh, and visible city are all about uh, men and women, many Jewish men and women, making and preserving their religious worlds. There is always in her writing a deep sense of place in her novels. Perhaps, I think, from her background as a sixth-generation descendant of German Orthodox Jews um, who came to Memphis, Tennessee in 1874. 
her new book, um, The Book of Separation, departs from the fictions she has created in her novels, although I think in all of those fictions she's there. Uh, you can see her in some of her sentences. Um, in this memoir, this true memoir of her own spiritual quest, which began with what she uh, describes as small disengagements um, with tradition, first rooted in questions that she had um, that seemingly are ever-growing larger for her, um, such as, did she really believe in orthodox? And she writes in regards orthodoxy, and she writes in regard to that question, orthodoxy, I was told, was not about belief, but about actions. It didn't matter what I believed as long as I continued to observe and belong. If the threads of belief began to fray, I love that, if the threads of belief began to fray, community was the net that kept you from falling. God was the prerequisite, presumably, for religion, but sometimes he seemed like an, embarrassed, an embarrassing parent of whom it was better not to speak too often. End quote. This book, and we have study guides um, that I'm going to put here. If you want a study guide for her new book from her publisher, they're available here. But I would tell you this. This is one of the most courageous books uh, of religious um, autobiography that I have read in years and years. This is a special book. So please welcome Tova Mirvis. Thank you all for coming. It's really nice to be here. And thank you especially to the students who have read Ladies Auxiliary and heard me talk about that and now are going to hear me talk about this again. Um, the book of separation really began for me with an essay I wrote about four years ago. It was right before my third novel, Visible City, came out. And my publisher asked me if I had any essays they could try to you know, publish somewhere to publicize the new book. And I really think of myself primarily as a fiction writer, but I had been working on a personal essay. And the essay was about my Orthodox Jewish divorce ceremony, a very scripted, very regulated religious ceremony that ends a marriage in the Jewish world. And I was working on this piece about how, in going through this ceremony, I came to realize that I was leaving not just a marriage, but the religious world that I had always been part of and that had shaped me. And it, you know, it felt like one of those essays that felt so personal. It felt like taking my most private, painful story and putting it on the page. And as I wrote it, I thought probably I wouldn't show it to anyone. It was probably was going to be one of those things that I kept for myself. But I kept working on it and, and kept playing around with it and finished it. And I decided that you know, maybe I would see how I felt about publishing it. And my editor at the time asked me you know, where I wanted to submit it, and we decided to send it to the New York Times, mostly thinking, you know, well, what are the odds that the New York Times would, you know, would publish this? You know, it felt like a safe bet to send it there. And so about an hour after emailing off this essay, I got a response from the editor saying that they loved it and wanted to publish it. And my first instinct was to write back and say, I'm just kidding, you know, I can't really do this. And um, I didn't do that, but um, I had that unsettled feeling of what did it mean to put this story out into the public sphere. And I didn't know when the essay was going to run. And then 
you know, unrelated to the writing, I had these plans to be in Costa Rica. I was going to do this 14-mile hike into this very remote part of a rainforest in southern Costa Rica and was very excited about the idea of being away from my computer and my phone. I wanted to be as off the grid as possible. And so I left my laptop at home, which is something I rarely do. It's sitting right there. Like I, you know, it's always right with me. And, um, and was really determined to, to let go of, of the questions about my book that was coming out and really be away. Um, but there was this one spot in this eco-lodge we were staying where you could get cell phone reception. And so after a few days, I figured I would just check my email just to kind of check in on the world and make sure everything was okay. And I had an email from the editor of the Times saying that they wanted to run the essay tomorrow. Was that okay with me? And could I edit it really quickly and send it back to them? And I was just like, if you could see where I am right now, you know, surrounded by toucans and forests and, you know, not in a place to do editing, but I borrowed a laptop and, and edited the piece and sent it off. And in that moment of sending it off, there was that sense of accepting that I was taking this, this story that felt so personal and so painful and sending it off into the world. And I think if there's one thing as I've learned as a writer, if I could give any aspiring writers one piece of advice, it's that when you put your most private moment in the New York Times, a rainforest is really a very good place to be. I highly recommend it um, because I was away for a few more days and didn't know any reaction to it. And then I came home and, of course, checked my phone the second I got back in range. And I saw that I had hundreds of emails. And some were from friends. But really, the vast majority were from strangers. They were from men and women, old and young, across all religious backgrounds, wanting to share with me their own stories. And some of these were stories of divorce. Some were stories of leaving religious worlds. But all in one way or another were stories of people struggling with the question of change. What does it mean to do something different than you thought you would do? Or what does it mean to want to do something different, but be not quite able to do it? And it was really the most moving experience I've had as a writer. It reminded me why I wanted to write in the first place. That sense that when you are willing to be vulnerable and willing to tell something honest and painful and true, it invites other people to connect with you and to share their stories too. And so it was, I had been toying really in the very back of my mind, really with a lot of skepticism, with this question of, could I actually write a memoir? It was hard for me to even say the word memoir without getting very nervous, this idea of putting your story out in the public. And this experience, though, made me realize that I did have the stomach for it, but mostly that there was a story that I wanted to share. There was a story that I felt went beyond my own personal particulars, a story about religious transformation and about how we make change. And so I decided that I was going to write a memoir, and I spent the first year of working on it reading memoir. I felt like I wanted to teach myself how to write a memoir. And one of the things I learned from reading memoir was not just the way you structure a memoir or how you develop characters, not just those craft issues, but I, I really learned what the value of memoir writing is. It reminded me, again, as a writer, that stories are how we connect with people. It's how we come to know what other people experience. And by seeing other people's lives, we come to understand our own in a better way. And so I embarked on the book 
really wanting to look in the book of separation, not just at the world that I was leaving, but at the world that had shaped me and held me for so long. I wanted to cut back and forth between what it meant to stay and what it meant to leave. And so I wanted to explore my upbringing in the Orthodox Jewish community in Memphis. And for those of you who are reading Ladies Auxiliary, you are probably as familiar with this world now as I was, that sense that there was a carefully constructed world that was very ordered, where there was a strong sense of who you're supposed to be and how you're supposed to act. And I wanted to evoke what is pleasurable about belonging, that feeling that you have a place in the world, that sense that you are not just in this larger, complicated world, but there's a spot you could look at and say, here, you know, right here is where I belong. I also wanted to look, though, at the flip side of that, which I think Ladies Auxiliary really was my first reckoning with that question, of what, if, what does it mean to feel like you pay a price with, for belonging with your own self, to feel that in order to belong, you have to be willing to shave off those parts of yourself that don't quite match. You know, to ask what is the cost of community, not just its pleasures. I think we hear a lot about the pleasure of belonging, but not as much about the price we sometimes pay in order to belong. I also wanted to look very much at the notion that I was raised with that being religious was the same thing as being good. In my mind, those two terms were entirely synonymous. And I was interested in looking at what happens when we are taught or when we teach others that there is a particular way you must be. And so I grew up you know, with the name Tova, which means good, which, you know, as I said before, is probably the best and worst name I could have been given, but was raised to believe that to stay was to be good. And so, of course, to leave was to be bad. And when I left Memphis to go to college, I was very much still part of the modern Orthodox world. And I think one of the things that distinguishes modern Orthodoxy from more right-wing Orthodoxy or ultra-Orthodoxy is the relationship to the outside world, that question of whether you can engage with secular culture and ideas. And I was raised in a world that believed that, yes, you can be part of a secular university. You can read secular books, study secular philosophy, so long as you hold on to your own ideals and maintain your own sense of identity. And I did this as a student in college, but always aware with a, a feeling of cognitive dissonance that it was created, this feeling that I was determined to remain one thing, even though I had questions about who that was and that other ideals I was learning were sometimes at war with that. But I wanted to belong. I wanted to remain inside that world. And so I decided, tried very hard not to listen to those voices and those questions. I'm very interested in the ways that questions can be seen both as part of a Jewish experience, but also very dangerous to people in religious worlds. I think questions open doors and open windows, and open doors leave the for the possibility of leaving. And so for me, that idea that I could ask something, I didn't want to ask anything that might shake that foundation. I also wanted to look at what happens, though, when those questions become louder. I think one of the things I've learned most in this experience is that questions never stay buried for long. Sooner or later, I think we all face those back-of-our-mind, behind-the-scene questions about who we are and what we really believe. For some of us, it happens early. For some of us, maybe later. But I think there's an inevitability to facing those questions. 
And so the book of separation really looks at what happens when I decided to ask myself if I really believed in the world I was living and if I really believed in the life that so much of my world was stacked upon. I, one of the things that was really most important to me was this term late doubt. I was interested in what happens when you come to these questions, not when you're young. I think I was raised to think, well, if you're going to leave orthodoxy, you do it in college, and then it's too late. Then you're sealed off into the rest of your life. What I didn't know then was that we have lots of moments when we ask questions and come back to it. And I think in many ways, the Book of Separation is a coming-of-age memoir about coming of age again and again or at a later date. And that question of what happens when you decide to heed that, those voices and in so many ways, I think the Book of Separation is really a memoir about change. I think change is enormously scary and is very hard to do because every change comes with loss. But I wanted to explore in the memoir the question of what happens when you decide that it becomes inevitable or necessary to make such a change, that changing is worth forging what, what, reaching what lays on the other side of it. And for all that, I started the book thinking that memoir was so different from fiction, and that memoir felt so much scarier. One of the things I ultimately decided was that it shared a lot more in common with the process of writing fiction than I had realized. For me as a fiction writer, what really moves me always is that question of what does it feel like to be someone else? What does it feel like to go inside someone else's experience and and look not just at the, the things we're supposed to think or the ways we're supposed to believe, but all those private, messy, inner complications that we all have. And for me, fiction is so much about that, but memoir was as well. In fiction, there's a game of hide-and-seek where it is you on the page and it's not. There's always this sense that you use yourself and then transform it and reinvent it. In memoir, the question really is, is not one of invention. It's not trying to recreate a world or to invent a new world, but really to ask not just what happened, but what really happened. You know, what is this story really about? In fiction, the hard part is coming up with the characters and the plot. In each of my books, there were so many points where I just felt like, I don't know. I don't know who you are. I don't know what happens to you. In memoir, there was not that feeling. I, I knew the characters all too well, and I knew, certainly knew the plot. But I didn't know the why, what lays underneath it, what are the reasons for things, why do we all do the things we do. And I felt like ultimately the question in writing this memoir was to look not just at my own particular experiences, but to find the universal questions that I think are so much part of each of our experiences. And for me, in this book, I felt like the universal questions are, how do we become ourselves? How do we let go of a sense of a mapped world, a sense of this is who you have to be and what you're supposed to be? How do we let go of those voices and begin to listen to our own? How do we make change? How do you let go, even when it sometimes feels like jumping off something and landing where you're, un where you're unsure of? And for me, the book as well is about not just how we leave things, but how we stay connected to parts of that past. A lot of books chart the path away, but I was also interested in, in charting a path that remains. I wanted to look at how we hold on to relationships with people who believe differently than we do, and to ask the question of how we forge those connections, even when there are gaps in religion or ideology. And ultimately, I felt like what the book came down to for me was 
that question of how do we live inside the subjective experience of religion. A lot of religious rules are, will say this is who you're supposed to be and what you're supposed to do. But in the human experience of religion, there's a lot more complicated stories. And one of the things that was struck me most in learning um, about the divorce process in Orthodox Judaism was that the bill of divorce is called a get. That's sort of how it's colloquially known. And it's a very carefully scripted piece of paper where every single word has to match. And it's carefully matched up with other ones. And if a word is misspelled, it can render it invalid. But the Hebrew term, the biblical term for this divorce document is Sefer Kritut, which translates as a book of rending or a book of tearing or a book of separation. And I felt like a lot of places we're told that our experiences have to fit on one page. They have to all match. But in life, of course, I think we could fill books with our own experiences and with those more complicated stories that lurk between laws. And so I think of the book of separation as really being my own version of that ancient document. So I'm going to read to you a little bit from the book of separation. And I'm going to read to you, um, not from the very first, the prologue, but from the first chapter. And the book follows the first year of my leaving this Orthodox Jewish world and really asking this question of, once you're off the map, what does life now look like? It is September, the first Rosh Hashanah since the divorce, and I've set out on my own. My three children are with their father at his parents' house, where I spent the past decade of these holidays. My parents, sister, and grandparents are at home in Memphis, where they will observe this celebration of the Jewish New Year in the Orthodox synagogue I attended every week of my childhood. My brother, along with four of his eight children, has traveled with throngs of fellow Breslover Hasidim, an ultra-Orthodox sect, to Uman, a city in Ukraine, the site of their spiritual pilgrimage. And I am fleeing to Kripalu, a yoga and meditation retreat in Western Massachusetts. Until this year, I celebrated every Rosh Hashanah the same way I had the one before. To spend this holiday anywhere but in the long, solemn hours of synagogue would have been unfathomable. Now, without the rules wrapped tightly around me, I no longer know what to do. Dreading the arrival of this year's high holidays, I'd considered pretending they didn't exist and decided to go to Kripalu only because yoga and meditation seemed to be the obligatory way of moving on. I assume you're doing yoga, an acquaintance said, upon hearing the news of my divorce. I've told few people where I'm going for the holiday, because to do so would be to admit that I'm no longer orthodox, something I'm still unsure of myself. Kripalu is a three-hour drive from my house in the Boston suburbs of Newton, a highway drive that, until recently, would have been impossible for me, unless I'd studied the maps in search of easy back roads, and plotted a route that felt sufficiently safe. For almost a decade of living in the Boston area, I've been gripped by a fear of driving, steadfastly avoiding rotaries, bridges, and tunnels, terrified of getting lost, most of all terrified of the highway. I had nightmares of making a wrong turn onto a wrong street that would lead me to an entry ramp that would take me onto a highway from which I'd never find my way back. Yet I'm now on the Mass Pike, Cars are passing me, too many and too fast. And still shocked that I'm driving on the highway, I clutch the steering wheel, worried about getting into an accident. 
The biggest fear, though, is not of any injury I might sustain, but of the fact that then people will know I'd plan to spend Rosh Hashanah at some suspect retreat center instead of praying in synagogue for a year of blessing, a year of goodness. At the start of all other years, I knew exactly what sort of goodness I was supposed to be praying for. But on this new year, there's no ready prayer, even if I could bring myself to utter one. I'll stop there. Thank you. That was fascinating. Thank you. Thank you. Um, can you tell us a little bit about your relationship with your family yes. from the separation? Sure. You know, I, I think that that was, you know, when I was on the brink of leaving this world and of leaving a marriage, I worried most about the impact on those around me. And I knew that to belong to a, you know, each family has its rules, right, of who we're supposed to be and how we fit into it. And when you change, you affect everyone and your people's conceptions of you change as well. And I was, of course, most worried about my children and my parents. Um, with my parents, I felt that they had known over the years that I was struggling and questioning both the marriage and the religious world. I think maybe we all were under the assumption that I would feel things but never do them. I was always someone who, I sort of, you know, I remember with one of my novels, someone said, nothing ever happens. And I was like, oh, no one ever acts on what they feel. Doesn't everyone just like think about it and ruminate and then, you know, leave it at that? But the idea that you could act on something, that you could actually change, that, you know, that idea was revolutionary to me. And I think maybe my parents thought the same thing thought that I was just going to feel this way. And so my parents, I had a moment when I was decided I was going to tell them, you know, sort of one of those, hi, mom, hi, dad, how are you guys doing? Um, and knowing I was going to drop this bomb of, I'm getting divorced, and also I'm not going to be Orthodox anymore, sort of one of your run-of-the-mill conversations, and, you know, sort of delivered this speech I had prepared for them, and there was silence for a moment. And in that, you know, in that two seconds or three seconds of silence, every possible scenario ran through my head of, when was, like, was I going to be yelled at like as if I were a child who had misbehaved? Was I going to be talked back from this ledge? You know, what was going to be my parents' response? And I think they delivered the, the words that are the most beautiful that any parents can say to a child. They said, we will be here for you. And that idea that it didn't match who they were. My parents are very much part of a modern Orthodox community. My brother is part of an ultra-Orthodox community. Um, but that they could make space for the possibility that I was not going to be like them. And, you know, it's a gift I'm grateful for, and it's a gift I also want to bestow on my own children. Um, it's complicated, of course, to raise children one way and then to switch gears. And certainly my children's father remains part of an Orthodox community in Brookline, in, in Boston, the Boston area, so it's doubly complicated. And I think with my children, what I most want to teach them is that there are many ways to be. I feel like I was raised with the idea that there is one way to be, and I hope that my children will learn that there are many ways of expressing a religious identity, of feeling a Jewish identity, of, of living in the world, and that the love I feel for you is not predicated on you choosing one of these particular ways, but to help them become themselves. And so I think, um, you know, I think that it's always complicated. I think relationships, of course, in any scenario are complicated. And when you add change into the mix, you change it around. But, you know, one of the things that I really wanted to map through the book was the question of what comes first? Does parental love come first or does religious ideology come first? And, you know, for me, the answer is always, is always family love. Okay, um, we have someone who will help me with the microphone. 
and she's a graduating senior, and you've taken five courses with me. Um, so <laughs> she knows how to do this. Um, okay, who wants to ask the next question? Hi, uh, excellent, thank you so much. Uh, mine's more of a comment question that you went through the formality of when you were getting divorced to have an orthodox mm -hmm. contract written up. And I was just wondering if you did that as opposed to just saying I'm gonna get divorced. You had an official divorce decree written. Was that to keep the door open in case you wanna go back? Or what was the reason mm -hmm. of your thinking for that? Right. I mean, it's interesting with the Jewish divorce ceremony. A lot of times people talk about the Jewish divorce ceremony because one of the religious or legal technicalities of it is that only a man can issue a divorce to a woman. And so sometimes you, you might read in the newspapers, there's you know, a situation where a man will refuse to issue the divorce to a woman, and there's nothing she can do about it. The, the Hebrew term is aguna, which means a trapped woman. So there are cases of women who have been civilly divorced for you know, 20, 30 years, but are technically religiously still married because the husband will not issue a divorce. And to me, it's a travesty of any kind of sense of religious justice or kindness in the world. Um, but so I certainly went into this idea of this process knowing that about the divorce ceremony, that it was, um, it was sort of like everything that bothered me about my religious observance was contained in this ceremony. It was about power, rabbinic power and personal autonomy. It was about gender roles of who is in charge, of who has power to make decisions, who is recognized by the law as a subject, who is not a subject. And so every, it was, you know, this low, it's like you couldn't have crafted a more loaded ceremony for me. And also it took place at such a raw moment. And, and it was a moment where you stand before the rabbis and they, they issue the divorce. Everything about the ceremony is choreographed. You know, you're told, okay, you have to hold your hands like this. The paper is written a certain way. It's folded. It's dropped into your hands. You take it. You walk from the room, sort of like demonstratively walk, close the door. It's this sort of this ancient ritual. And, in doing it, you know, I felt like I wanted to do it um, partially because it was important to my ex-husband. I also, you know, at the time, I knew that I was not going to remain part of the religious world in that way. I think that I had already become aware of that sense that I was had for so long forced myself to put aside a question and to do things even when I knew I was bothered. I think one of the things that kept me in the Orthodox world for so long was the idea that you could re reframe anything. You know, I could say, no, 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 it's not anti-feminist to have this. Really, if you look at it this way and you tilt it and you squint your eyes and you do a few backflips, it's actually very feminist. The sense that you could shift everything and, and remake it so it wasn't what it appeared to be. And, you know, for me, that has a, a certain amount of dishonesty to it. And so I didn't go in with any illusions, but I felt in many ways that the only way out was through, that I was going to do this, um, sort of end this part of my life where rabbinic authority could claim my most personal decisions. But it did feel like this moment of leave-taking. It felt like almost standing before the very things that had so long bothered me about that world and being able to almost, there's something about the experience of, of looking at it and saying this, this is why, this is one of the reasons why. And, and you know, it's part of the book or part of the original essay that I wrote um, that the rabbis who issued the ceremony were very kind. It was not, I don't have anything negative to say about the experience itself. At the end of it, one of the rabbis wished me a mazel tov, sort of a congratulatory moment in some weird way. But um, at the same time, I knew that the idea of religious authority 
governing decisions where I felt differently, that, that conflict between law and self. You know, in the past, I had always chosen law. I, for many years, covered my hair as was sort of customary of many Orthodox women. Even though I, I hated every minute of doing it, I was following an Orthodox mandate that a married woman's hair was considered immodest or you know, off limits in some ways. And so I covered my hair, even though I chafed at it tremendously, but I chose to adhere to a law rather than to my own self. And I guess maybe the biggest departure or the biggest change I would map, you know, that really I think that moment embodied was a decision that I wasn't going to make that same decision. That for me now, my own internal sense of truth and morality, um, rightness or wrongness or um, would have more of a voice than what I felt like I was supposed to be doing. Um, I know you talked a lot about leaving places and um, that being a big struggle for you, but I was wondering um, which one was hard, hard, hardest for you to leave your marriage or your religion? Right. It's interesting. You know, they came together. They were, you know, someone once said to me, um, my sister, who is a therapist, once, you know, heard me complain how nothing can change. And she said, you know, people who don't make small changes sometimes end up making big changes. I feel like I'm the perfect example of that being true. Um, you know, it's ironic. I think that leaving orthodoxy was the harder one. Um, you know, leaving a marriage comes with its own sadnesses and particular pains. And, you know, one of the things I've you know, said in the book, and I would say again and again, is you can leave a marriage, but you can never leave a divorce. You know, you're always sort of, especially when you have children, you're always sort of connected in some ways. But that was a story that sort of, you know, I could, I could wrap my mind around it. It was that this, I had made a decision when I was 22 to get married too quickly before I knew myself, let alone even know someone else. And, and this was the result of that decision being made too quickly. With religion, it, was, it, it shook me to the core in a larger way because it was that sense of not just who I was as a wife, but who I was as a person. You know, the being orthodox was, my, was so much part of my identity, even to the point where recently my sister referred to me as not being Sabbath observant. And I sort of bristled. I was like, what do you mean? I was like, oh, yeah, you're right. I forgot. But like that sense of how could that be? How, could, how is this even possible? And so I think that religion was so embedded in me, and not just religious teachings, but the idea of strict religious observance, that if you do, even my, you know, Orthodox Judaism is based so much on minute actions, where, um, you know, the transgressions are small, you know, the idea that for me, the, the first real departure moment was on the Sabbath, sneaking upstairs to the bathroom and, you know, taking out my iPhone and like checking my email, you know, like hardly an earth shattering thing to most people. But for me, that transgression loomed enormously large. And I think in the Orthodox world where so much is built on these small rules, even the smallest transgression can feel enormous and it can destabilize your sense of who you are. I have a question. Um, did you feel like any part of the book, like the word just came out on the page and it was easy for you to write and then there were parts where you were stuck on where you couldn't really get your words across? Yeah, you know, it's funny with the writing process. With fiction, I'm a slow writer. My, my third novel somehow took me 10 years, which even now when I try to understand that, it's, it feels sort of astonishing. Um, it's, I think the book is like 260 pages and my daughter looked at it and she's like, 10 years, 26 pages a year? You know, she's like not impressed by that slow pace. And of course, most of it's revision and over and over again. And, and the writing felt different for this. It felt, you know, I felt like because I knew the story, it felt less like creating something but figuring out how to tell it. And so 
there were days when I felt like the story was just waiting for me to write. Like if I just sort of was able to get myself in a mode where I was willing to go there, it felt like it did more, took more emotional work to sort of quiet the voice that said, what will people say about you? And are you really going to tell this to everyone you know? And will people talk to you anymore? And what happens when you walk you know, into this place and everyone's read your personal story? Like that, those, once I could quiet those questions, I felt like I was able to write them. Some of them, you know, of course, felt very painful to write. Some of the scenes that when I was really deep inside the writing, especially writing about the past, it's funny, the, the writing about the year of leaving felt less painful than writing about, you know, I think probably the hardest scenes for me to write were the scenes of making choices that I now look back at differently or deciding to get married or even happy moments. You know, I think when you get divorced, sometimes you look back at the past as, oh, it was all bad. But of course, it's not like that. There are many lovely, happy moments, loving moments. It's, it's complicated in that way. But I think writing about the happy times in some ways were the hardest. We have time for just one more question. Who wants to? Uh, Jeffrey? Let me bring the mic over to you. Hi, Tova. Hi. So now um, that you've liberated yourself from the orthodox aspect, do you feel the liberation could be a new trap? Could a liberation be? Right, you know, it's funny, you know, I once, um, I don't believe in easy endings. I don't believe in the idea that you know you leave and like you walk out into a broad world and everything is clear. I think maybe we wish those things stories were true, but in any complicated story, every change, every change for the good comes with loss and freedom comes with loss and I think there's often a trade-off between freedom and and belonging. And so you know one of the things I I most want to be is honest about the experience and I feel like to offer any sense of you know, well, that's done, let's move on. You know, I think that you, we always carry with us loss. And I think as I've gotten older, I recognize that loss can live aside happiness also, that they, they are not coming from the same pile. You can carry both with you. And so I think that leaving, I still bear the scars of leaving and the losses. I miss a sense of community. I miss that sense of belonging, even when it felt too tight for me. And I, you know, think about ways to create it. I've created it in other ways, but... I think that, you know, maybe it's the wisdom of my 45 years now or something that I didn't know when I was younger, but that feeling that you, that we can, we can live with loss, that we have no choice but to live with that sense of loss. Uh, Tova, I'd like to thank you for coming all the thank way. Thank you all so much. From Boston. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.